lovely inclusive picture on the screen, isn't it, of the wedding banquet? It's lovely. When we discussed this earlier in the week, um, several people suggested it'd be easier to uh, speak about the Philippians one. The wedding banquet's got some very interesting things in it, hasn't it? I guess many of you, like me, have invited people to church services or church events over the years and have been interested in the responses. Sorry, got to take the children to sport on Sunday. Or busy, busy, busy. Out of town for the day. The best um, Justin and I received recently was, I will when I get my teeth done. <laughs> but when someone does respond positively, it's really, really heartwarming, isn't it? And even better when they say, that was good, I'll come back next week. Well, today's gospel reading is the third installment in the series of rebukes directed towards the Jewish leaders. In the context, Jesus has been teaching in the temple following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we read, read this in the previous chapter. And the chief priests and the elders, upset by his popularity with the people, interrupt his teaching and demand that he give one reason why he has the right to open his mouth on their turf. In response, Jesus tells the leaders, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. The parable, or in Matthew, it's more of an allegory, a story within a story, is the final of Jesus' three judgment parables. The parable of the two sons being asked to work in the vineyard, the parable of the wicked tenants and the Lord's vineyard being given to others, and today's gospel reading, the wedding banquet. The first two were our gospel readings for the previous two Sundays. But last Sunday we had the readings for St. Francis of Assisi, so we missed the story of the landowner planting a vineyard, putting up a fence, digging a wine press, building a watchtower and renting it out to tenants. But at harvest time, the tenants refused to give the owner's servants the produce due to him. After some attempts at sending servants, the landowner sends his son, whom they seize, throw out of the vineyard and kill. This gives us a window into today's parable or allegory. So the parable of the king's son's wedding banquet is so outrageous so shocking that it begs to be taken seriously, not literally. It begs to be taken as truth, not historical fact. Besides, to hear the parable and conclude that God is an angry king who, if he doesn't get his way, destroys his own people and burns the city, simply does not fit with the God revealed to us by Jesus throughout the four Gospels. It is a way of challenging our preconceived ideas and expectations so that we might see something new, hear something new, think something new, and ultimately become something new. No doubt this is a parable of judgment, but it may not be the judgment we think it is. 
I suspect our nervousness and fear about God's judgments arise from the assumption that God judges us in the same way we judge others. More often than not, our judgments of others are judgments of exclusion. What if it's just the opposite with God? What if Jesus is trying to shock us into seeing that the kingdom of heaven is not business as usual, according to our standards? What if God's judgment on our lives is one of grace, acceptance, and invitation? A judgment of inclusion. So let's unpack the text a little and maybe make things easier to grasp. First of all, this is one of those parables in which the writer, here it is Matthew, takes a story of Jesus and reworks it for his own purposes. You can see another version of this parable in the 14th chapter of Luke. And it's probably closer to the one that Jesus actually told. What Matthew does is sort of soup up the story so it isn't exactly a street legal parable anymore. Instead, it becomes an allegory of salvation history, a way of telling what Matthew sees as the central movements of God's actions and plans for all of human history. Since it's an allegory and not a parable, we don't need to bother too much about whether the details of the thing make sense the way they do in regular parables. In this allegory, the first guests stand for Israel. The first two sets of slaves who issue the invitation represent the prophets of the Old Covenant, which is why some of them are beaten up and killed, hardly the usual way for declining an invitation. The city that is destroyed is Jerusalem. The second part of the allegory the slaves who are sent into the main streets to invite just anybody are the apostles, the followers of Jesus after the resurrection who brought the church together. And the church, Matthew knew all too well, was filled with both good and bad, righteous and unrighteous, deserving and undeserving. After all, everyone means everyone. Good, bad and indifferent. The second crowd is very different from the first group, just as the church was very different from the leaders of Israel. So here we are. The wedding hall is filled with all sorts of guests. This precise moment in the story is Matthew's present. The world right then, as he knew it. It is also the world as we know it, the present age of the church. Matthew is expressing the early Christian belief that, in spite of the words of the prophets and of John the Baptist, Israel, especially Israel's leaders, had repeatedly ignored God's invitation to his great messianic banquet for his son Jesus. So they are rejected, and the church is formed by the apostles. Remember, the apostles are represented in this allegory by the slaves who are sent to everybody else, to the lower classes, to women, to the Gentiles, to the ones who had been ignored and ostracized, to those who lived on the wrong side of town. 
And the apostles are told not to judge, but to invite. That was the way things were when Matthew used this parable of Jesus to tell the story of salvation history. What happens next is big. What happens next is the end of all things, the second coming, the final judgment. The king arrives, and the king comes apparently for the first time to see his guests, to see who has managed to stumble or to be dragged into the party. Now, at this point, a lot of biblical scholars become very interested in the poor guy who gets tossed out. All sorts of things have been written about why he gets the boot, which mostly has to do with guessing what the reference to a wedding robe or a wedding garment meant back then. Since nobody really knows what a wedding robe means, the guesses have run amok. They have included everything from ordinary clean clothes to a robe everybody supposedly had hanging in their house if they only would take a few seconds to go and pick it up right through to the white garments often given to newly baptised Christians. Some interpreters even say the problem is the man's silence, not his clothes. Still others like to talk about an inner state or condition. Some say the wedding robe is a metaphor for a garment of good works or a robe of righteousness. St. Augustine said that the wedding robe was love that springs from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. And there is scriptural support for a number of those. Another theory is that the wedding garment was a robe that the host gave to the guests as they arrived, that the guests put on over whatever else they were wearing. And there's some good evidence for this understanding, and it fits with what Matthew is talking about. But remember, what is happening here is not supposed to be precise examples of Palestinian social customs. Concern for accurate detail has gone out the window. This is a story about the final judgment. So Matthew is saying that even though the church is filled with the righteous and unrighteous, the good and the bad alike, and even though the apostles who call people to the church are not supposed to judge and are not supposed to exclude, and even though absolutely everyone is invited and absolutely everyone is handed all they need, both to be properly dressed and to have a great time at the party, still, sooner or later, the king is going to arrive in person. And if you matter, if you are a real person, then you have to be able to say no. You have to be able to reject the invitation to ignore the robe, otherwise you aren't really there. The guy who refuses to put on the garment becomes a symbol for everyone invited to the feast who, nevertheless, declines to participate. It's about the freedom we human beings have to say no to God. It's not about some overreaction to wearing the wrong outfit. And it's important that we have this choice that we have the freedom to say no, to refuse to put on the garment handed us at the door, and so thereby take our chances outside. If we can't do that, if we can't say no, then we can't really say yes either. 
and we just become sheep rounded up into a gilded pen. Our humanity, our freedom, our very dignity demand that we have what the king gave that fool in the story, which is the opportunity to walk away from the greatest gift he could imagine, a gift he had, in fact, already been given. And the poor guy had to really work at it. He was given all sorts of chances, but the king would not take away the man's option to say no. The king would not treat him as someone whose actions didn't matter and whose choices didn't matter. This parable or allegory is Matthew's telling of the whole story of sacred history from the beginning of Israel to his ideas about the final judgment. The story is mainly about invitations, about God's constant, persistent and repeated invitation to God's great party. And who knows about our stubborn friend who is gnashing his teeth in the outer darkness. The parable hints that the character of the king is such that sooner or later he just might send a slave or two out in that direction to issue, as he did with his first set of guests, one more batch of invitations. And above all, this story reminds us that God's kingdom is a kingdom in which love and justice and truth and mercy and holiness reign unhindered. And that is good news indeed. I finish with Christian author Susan Sayers' thought for the day on this topic. Here's one thing you can take home if you can't take in all the rest I've said. Thought for the day. We, she says we are all invited to God's wedding banquet. In accepting, we must allow the rags of our old life to be exchanged for the freely given robe of holiness and right living. Amen. Amen.